the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We've got a lot to talk about today. In a few moments, we will have two great interviews. Judy Agamon. Judy Gammon is an author. She's the author of a book called Love, Life, and Lucille. It's extraordinary. It's wonderful. Now, you all know I have a soft spot for our senior citizens. My wife is a geriatrics physician, internal medicine doctor specializing in, in uh, seniors, and we love our seniors. We just love them, and we love their stories and their joy. Judy Gammon has written a book about her 100-year-old friend, and I think I'm going to find out from her for sure. I think she became friends with her when uh, her friend Lucille was about 100 and was friends with her for like four or five years at the end of her life. Extraordinary story. Interesting, interesting book. Fun to read. We'll talk with Judy Gammon in a minute, in a few minutes. And also today we will have a, a conversation with Kenny Shu. Kenny Shu is a, a young man. He runs a an organization uh, that is focused on um, protecting and and advocating for Asian Americans against the kinds of uh, focused efforts that are against them. It's called his book. He has a new book called An Inconvenient Minority. And it's about the Ivy League admissions cases and the attack on Asian American excellence. Um, and uh, he's a very cool dude. We'll talk with him about that and about his uh, efforts to try to highlight these issues. Um, and he's a writer over the Federalist and other places. And you can check him out. All right. Um, a lot more. But first, what you need to know today. Uh, earlier on Friday... Uh, July 22nd, a, a, a jury in a uh, federal court in Washington, D.C., uh, convicted Steve Bannon of two counts of contempt of Congress. Each count has a penalty at sentencing of between one month, 30 days and one year. So he could be sentenced to two years in prison for not answering a subpoena from Congress in a timely fashion, blowing it off. And I don't mean to disrespect him. I think we should say he he didn't think he should respond because of he argued executive privilege. Lots of lots of reasons, but here we are. We are in deep trouble if we become a nation where we target our political opponents and put them in jail. Because whatever you think of Bannon, and you can go, and I mean, look, I know Steve Bannon very well. He's very, very smart. He's a very nice guy. He's funny, interesting, all that. But he's very, very talented. I mean, he's a he's a generational type talent. He's a it, it includes the ability to self promote, but because he has a way of 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 winning, of leading in various fields, it's very successful in business, very, very successful in business, very, very successful in media. Credited in large part with really boosting Breitbart after Andrew Breitbart died, Steve Bannon came in and, and over a course of a couple of years and very successful in politics. There's no one that doubts that he was the campaign manager or chairman or whatever for the last couple of months of Trump, but he had been guiding Trump and his campaign for uh, months before that in some ways. So this is a very, very successful guy. And it, whatever you think of his uh, reasons to not speak to the select committee, this is exactly what government that's out of control 
Truly, fascist governments do. They use the power of the law against the people in ways that they then justify to the people as sincere and serious. Because you can imagine Congressman Benny Thompson, African-American congressman of long standing in his 60s, and he could go on the shows this weekend, although I think he has COVID, he might not be able to go on the shows, but if he did, he would say something like, we have to have respect for Congress when we need to get to the bottom of serious national security issues, blah, 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 except nothing about the select committee is serious. What you need to know is it's always been a tool used to torture political opponents. And the torture can include jail and actual torture. It can include lawfare and litigation and all, but it couldn't just include subpoenas where you have to show up and answer questions and and be scared and nervous and hire lawyers and tell your employers and not get a job and lose your job and change your job and quit your and lose your energy and stress your spouse out, all those things. This is political warfare waged against opponents of the people with power. That's what's happening. And in this case, it's aided and abetted by big tech and big media. And so let me pause and say again, what you need to know is you're watching the greatest threat to our republic in this January 6th hoax. The Russia hoax was pretty bad, and it had the effect of damaging the presidency and all that. It was pretty bad, and it was proven false. But it was, it was not able to be weaponized by the narrative machine because they couldn't get the real participation of the government because the administration was Republican. And even the independent counsel, Mueller, had some his hands tied by the fact that he wasn't willing to lie completely. So all the leaking, it had to be leaking, right? It had to be Mueller investigation did this. It was a leak, we're told. And it was covered as if breathlessly, as if it was real. But then when the Mueller report came... It turns out to be a fraud. When the Steele dossier was investigated, it turns out to have been British and Hillary Clinton uh, folks promoting it. What you need to know is the January 6th hoax has been weaponized like nothing's ever happened in our history. Big tech with more power than they've ever had to influence what you see, therefore what you believe, and therefore what you know and what you do. Big tech is dominating us. Big media feeding into the, the, the lies, feeding into the distortions, feeding into the hysteria, and doing it not amateurishly, but with sophisticated cutting and pasting and managing a video and managing the truth. And then we have big government, massive big government, Congress, utilizing subpoena power, and, the, and then they all work together. And so the narrative machine is driving an agenda that says there was an insurrection organized by people, supposed to do something, all this stuff, and it is working. As I told you yesterday, when, when, the, when Senator Danforth and, and five or six others put out a definitive white paper, and it's quoted as a definitive white paper, it was 15 pages of a, of a term paper with 60 pages of, of footnotes and links to stories. But it's quoted as a data point. Wow. Now we can say Bannon was convicted. Wow. A jury of his peers. You can't get, a, 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 you can't get an impartial jury in, in, in Washington, D.C. What you need to know is January 6th, the January 6th hoax that's being perpetrated on the American people with big government, big tech, and big media working the narrative machine. It's the greatest threat to our nation 
since maybe since Nazi Germany looked like they were going to conquer Europe and we were going to worry about it. It's that big. And the only solution on this day is that every member of Congress that has the stomach, and I wish there was Democrats, there won't be, should rise up and say, hey, we're going to legislatively pardon Bannon. It's not a real legal exercise, but they could say, you know what? We're not going to demand jail time for this political fight. We legislatively pardon. Speaker McCarthy ought to say it now. That's what he'll do. And not stop until he's out of jail. If they send him to jail, we'll see. Dark day for America. Dark day. All right, we'll take a break. We got great guests. We'll be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Uh, Our next guest, I've been looking forward to for a couple of weeks because uh, she was kind enough to send me her book. Uh, And Judy Gammon is an author and she's uh, well, she's had a a wide uh, career. When I first read this, I was like, wow, this is a great book about this um, relationship. It's called Love, Life and Lucille Lessons Learned from a Centenarian about her relationship and her friendship with a woman named Lucille, which we'll talk about. Uh, But then Judy's got a whole career doing lots of things. So uh, first of all, welcome uh, Judy Gammon to the show. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great, and it's such a pleasure on your show. You do such a great job. It's my honor to be here with you. Well, you're nice to say thank you. So first, um, did you think as you were in this friendship, so how long were you friends with Lucille? She she died at 100. Just uh, Was she 100 exactly? I can't remember. But yeah, she, she actually died just shy of her 104th birthday, and I met her. She was two weeks shy of her 104th when she died, and I met her just a few weeks after her 100th birthday. So that's the interesting thing I was going to say to you about this is, isn't it? I I have had friends, you know, so people, a lot of people mark their life. They go to college, for example, or they do something, they have a job for three years. And so sometimes you can have these friendships that are meaningful at a point in your life, which it surprises you later to think about, like she had a life for a hundred years then she met you. And for you, that period was really uh, a special time. And and one thing about that is a lot of times people that live that long, their their friends have cycled over a couple times. Like they don't have the same, you know, their their best friend died 25 years earlier. I mean, so it's a it's kind of an interesting thing, time that you, you have this uh, sort of you step into a life and a friendship. Yeah, you know, it's funny you said that about most uh, people who are older, their people and their friends have all passed on. And if you think about Lucille, one of her things was you always have to have younger friends. I mean, she always <laughs> had friends of every age. Uh-huh. And it really showed because at her funeral, it was a packed house. And when you see people that die, even like 80 and past, there's fewer and fewer people there to, uh, you know, to remember them and to talk about experiences because they've outlived them. Yeah. Um, we're talking with Judy Gammon. Again, the book is Love, Life, and Lucille, Lessons Learned from a Centenarian. I, w- I-, I-, I was struck when you meet someone who lives that long, there's lots of ways to do it. We had a friend that lived to 114. And um, I remember there were, you know, one of the things is she worked her whole life. She never stopped working. She had a job into her 90s. And, and she used to talk about how she just always got up and did something. With Lucille, one of the things that was interesting is she always, she, she prided herself on looking nice. In other words, she got up and she didn't just get up and do her thing. She got up and 
got dressed, got got, and something about that feels old fashioned, and yet it's such an illustrate. It's kind of a, a illustration of something that works for us, right? If we know we're going to get up and we're going to put on our nice clothes and comb our hair and brush our teeth and do something, she did that every day, right? She did, and she would say to me, you know, how you um, present yourself mm-hmm. is half of your attitude. And I just never forgot that. I loved that she laid her clothes out the night before, fully expecting that she was going to wake up and that she was going, <laughs> yeah. and, and she, you know, which after a hundred, you don't know, but she fully expected to wake up. And she also, you know, she had her hair done, she had her makeup on, she laid out her jewelry and she knew, I think she never voices, but I think she knew that she was an inspiration for all the other people people who were there at the independent living center because she once said to me you know when i first got here nobody really dressed up people wouldn't even do their hair when they come down to eat she says but after a while it became an event you know everybody (laughs) would get all dressed up to eat and i do think that that was her you know her influence on them she was the ultimate influencer before we even had that term yeah she kind of lived that life yeah, um, uh, Judy Gammons, our guest again. Love, L- love, life, and Lucille is the book. Um, in the book, it's kind of a memoir, of course. So you're talking about the lessons learned from a centenarian, but it's lessons you learned. So you know, we in there you talk about and you, you face illness. I also picked up, and I thought it was sort of powerful. Again, a, a sort of part of our all of our lives. You you referred to uh, your mom and your stepdad, and your dad and your stepmom, and the relationships there. At one point, your mom was coming. I think it was your mom coming to visit, and and she takes way too long. And, and I, I was, you know, reminded that there's moments when you're an adult suddenly and you're like, you, you kind of want your mom and dad to behave like they should, not like they are. And, and it's kind of a funny thing. So there's a lot in the book about you growing. Um, did you, did you have a friend like her previous to her? Never, never. And, you know, I don't even think I really understood the true meaning of friendship. Hmm before I met Lucille. And I think that's one thing that we're all getting away from. What does it mean to be a friend? What does it mean to have a friend? It has nothing to do with social media. It has nothing to do with how many people check your or like your stuff. Right. It's, it's those people that go through the human experience with you that are that are there with you and you are there with them at the highs and the lows. And you can openly discuss your disappointments, your failures, um, your wins. I mean, all of that. And that's one thing that Lucille and I did so well together. We we made each other better people. And, mm-hmm. and I say that um, because it's true. Lucille, I mean, I think she was a saint, you know, how could she get any better? But she still had so much potential over 100. And when she went out on book tour with me with the Age to Perfection book, which is how I met her. I had interviewed her for that book. When she went out on book tour with me, she just came alive. She found a new calling. And I told her, I said, Lucille, you're a longevity expert now. And she just (laughs) wore that like, yes, I am. And and I think that it just breathed new life. And I I speak a lot all over the country. One of the things I make sure I say in every speech I give is that you're never too old. You're never too washed up. You're never too burnt out to have a new calling, to to live life. As long as you still have a heartbeat, you still have a purpose. Uh, Judy Gammons, the author, we're talking about her book, Love, Life, and Lucille, Lessons Learned from a Centenarian. You can find it anywhere books are sold, and it's uh, uh, published by She Writes Press uh, is the publisher. Um, Judy, the 
uh, the end of her life. So, uh, by the way, I should reveal my listeners will know my wife is a, a physician, a geriatrics physician. So all her all her patients are 80 and over. And so we do a lot of we do a lot of talking and, and we have a lot of uh, of a lot of old people in our lives in terms of around my, my wife will be talking about her patients. Uh, but um, as you know, eventually patients, people die. And at the end of her life, when Lucille's one of the things I found powerful is where I am in my life watching this. So many people are lonely now. So many people are are um you know disjointed from families they they live so long you lived into your 90s your kids may be in their 70s they have their own issues at the end of their life and in their life that's sort of moving on and at the end when she when she died i thought it was a very powerful the way you wrote it but it was also special that she had you there and i thought to myself don't you worry i mean judy don't you worry that there's so many Lucille's that don't have a Judy that got into their life at a hundred that could be with her at the end. Because if you weren't there, it, it feels like it would have been really sad. You know, it, I never thought of it that way, but um, it is true. And and I, I think there are a lot of people that don't have that person in their life. But, I, you know, I put that on, on people of, of our generation, you know, the people that are in there, you know, forties to sixties. Um, you know, we we should not discount the friendships that we could have with people that are older, the things we could learn, the wisdom we could absorb like sponges. We we are so, I don't know, enamored with politicians and celebrities and looking to all the wrong places to figure out our problems when there's so much wisdom in the elderly. They've been there, done that. Like for Lucille, she was born the year the Titanic sank. She came to America in the middle of the Depression. She wow. put herself through school when it wasn't really that kosher for women to work. And then she was a, a nurse and a working woman her whole life. So there's there's so much that, that we discount. And all maybe we see is someone who's aged. We don't see how they still have all of that life in them. They have all all of the wisdom. They have all of that advice. They're just waiting for somebody to talk to them. Yeah. The um, Again, the book is Love, Life, and Lucille, Lessons Learned from a Centenarian, uh, uh, Judy uh, Gammon um, is the author. It is it is true. And yet, uh, you, as you just pointed out, it, the wonderful, I mean, it, somehow the 40 to 60-year-olds, we have to do something that makes them realize how beneficial it is either to them or to these pe- seniors because they're living wonderfully. We're all living forever. I mean, it's a real gift. I mean, it's such a blessing to have all the science and technology and all. So you get to live longer, but then there's all these things that we never had to deal with. I mean, and we, we had extended families that could be there. I, I didn't pick it up. I'm sorry. I'm a fast reader and sometimes a little careless, but did Lucille have uh, immediate family? So over her life that were already gone or disjointed? She did. She has um, two sons. They're still alive. You know, they're in their 70s. They look like they're 50. <laughs> they must <laughs> be good genes. Yeah. Um, they're, they're fabulous. You know, but one uh, one lived locally and one lived um, in California, still does. They're wonderful people. And and I think having just lost my own mom a few weeks ago, oh, wow. it's, um, it's, it's a really interesting time in your life when your parents are, are aging and yeah. you're trying to kind of figure out your own life i think you know what does it look like now that my my parent has gotten to this incredible age and they're living on borrowed time yeah. and and you know they i i still hang out with them i still see them i think they're they're amazing human beings she raised them right um but there's something about 
Lucille and I's friendship, people say, well, was she like a mother to you? Absolutely not. It was not a mother-child relationship. It truly was a best friend relationship. Mm. Um, so many people who read the book say they've never laughed so hard in their life. Yeah, it's true. And they're like, uh, you know, there were times when they said, I just laughed out loud. And then the next minute, next chapter, I'd be bawling my eyes out. And so it takes them on this emotional roller coaster. But that's exactly how it was. I mean, they're, they're going along that journey with us. Yeah. And they're feeling all the feels of life that we have stifled in so many ways. So just to kind of experience that, what she brought to me is what I, I just want to bring to, to my readers is that joy of life. Yeah, well, it works. You're right. There's funny moments, and there's these her her character. You're you're very good at that. I mean, you get in the book, you get to know. We're talking with Judy Gammon, you you as the author, because you're going through things, and you sort of pick up on you and your husband's relationship. You watch the details and all. Uh, but she's really like a she is like a, almost like a this larger than life comic character with her th- the things. And there's something about it, by the way. You, if you get to live, to, if you get to be 102 or so, and you make a joke, you get the benefit of the doubt. Like you you don't you don't get kind of judged quite as hard. You're the stand up. Cow- uh, crowd is is more gentle in terms of sort of it just kind of comes off as so wonderful and charming but now let me finish I, on this when you the book love life and lucille i bet you you get people that come to you and i know this book came out right right in the middle of the covid thing so it's probably ongoing now but they come and say i i wish i'd sort of thought this through before so and so was gone right there's a sense of a lot of people that feel like if they could have figured it out, they might have acted differently. It feels like that's, especially with the with older people, we're so darn busy in our life. Life goes racing by, and here we are. That feels like, I mean, I hope that's one of the things the book does is makes a bunch of people say, oh, I do have time. But I bet a lot of people say, I wish I could go back in time. Well, I've had both. You know, yeah. I, I've had people that relate to the how I'm just completely an open book about my own life. And people that relate to to Lucille's life and where she was and people that relate to, you know, our friendship. Well, it came out in the middle of the pandemic. And this is an interesting thing because I couldn't wait for the book to come out. There was this massive book tour. I was going to do something with the Texas Rangers. I had these events. I mean, it was a massive book tour plan. And it was released April 2020. So, you know, <laughs> you, you, you can figure that out. What happened? Yeah. Oh, bam. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I had a one day pity party and, right. and I kind of cried and I was like, I can't believe all this, this work and, and it's all just, everything's getting canceled every single day. And then I just sat with my thoughts and I just kind of asked Lucille out loud, what am I supposed to do? Hmm. And, and she, she very, very much said to me, take them to lunch with us. And I'm like, what the heck does that mean? So I had all these books that were, were in my garage that were for these events. And I went to these, these independent living centers and I dropped them off and I just gave them. And I said, Hey, um, maybe you have people that might want to read this. Maybe they're by themselves because this is what was happening. People that were widowed or widowers, they were behind locked doors. They had nobody to talk to, nobody to touch. And, you know, that gave me so much more joy. And it has come back tenfold. It wasn't about selling the books. It wasn't about um, even me at that point. It was about, oh, my gosh, she's right. I need to take them to lunch. This is the best way to take them to lunch. And the, the feedback and the love that came back, people saying they were laughing at a time where they just didn't know what was going to happen to them. They were all afraid they were going to die, you know, um, and alone in, in their, 
in their apartments. So I, I think that things happen for a reason. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a big lesson for me as, as a writer, as mm-hmm. a human being uh, in so many ways. And the, the sales came later. The, the book awards came later. All that came later. But first, it was about giving that story to the people who needed it the most. And I'm, I feel so blessed that that, that happened when it did. We, um, uh, Judy Gammon is our, our guest and it's, by the way, her website is judygammon.com, which I'll put up on social media. If you want to find out more about her and about a lot of the books and all everything. And I'll just finish with this, Judy. I, I, I read the book. I, my listeners know I read the first and last chapter of book and then I go through the book. So, because I get a lot of books and I, and I can't read the chapter. I think it's like 32 or three, the big mistake, because to me, the whole thing, it's about how she dies and it's a mistake at that by the, by one of the caregivers to me, that's like haunting. I, I read it was one of those things I read and I want to forget it because everything else in it was so interesting and funny and, and, uh, and kind of wonderful. Um, but it, that's life too. And life intrudes, right. And life is, um, is what it is. You do say in there once you say Lucille wasn't perfect. Like no, nobody's, we're not, even though she was a saint, I know you said that and she was special, but all of us are imperfect, right? There's a, someone, someone came up to me and was talking about this and said, it's a, it's the basket case theory, which is we're all basket cases in our own way, right? I mean, we just uh, it's how you learn to cope with it and all. But uh, but it's an extraordinary tribute to her, and and uh, and I think opens up a lot of um, space for people to relate to uh, the people around them that are older. It's just wonderful. So congratulations on the book. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you for such a fun interview. Yeah, well, you're you're welcome. I love to talk, and uh, I could talk for hours and hours, but we'll wrap it up now because we got to do radio. Worry about it. So, uh, Judy Gammon again, the book which is available everywhere you get books: Love, Life, and Lucille: Lessons Learned from a Centenarian. It's extraordinary, fun, and interesting. Um, lots of uh, there, there, and also JudyGammon.com. You can go see your website. There's even more there, there. So, thanks again, Judy. We'll talk again soon. Always a pleasure. All right. We'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Don't forget, we'll put all this up on social media and uh, be back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. So uh, I guess a week or so ago, I got an email and I followed up and I, it got me to having this great guest on the program. Kenny Shu is the pre- president of Color Us United, which is a nonprofit organization. Um, and it's, you, can, you can hear in that statement, it's uh, about bringing people together and in this case, fighting uh, hate. He's also, his organization is one of the um, insiders on the uh, Harvard Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard case. So he writes over at the Washington Examiner, Daily Signal, Signal, other places. And so first of all, welcome, uh, shirt, so, shirt, <laughs> welcome, sir, to the program. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm great. No, it's great. And the a book, he's got a new book out, An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy. Now, a little closer to home for me, and I know you live in the D.C. area, Fairfax County has this same problem where uh, Asian Americans, I, I don't, nobody came along and said all Asian Americans do this, but a bunch of uh, families put their kids into schools in Fairfax County, and they're changing the admission policies of one of the elite schools primarily because the most successful kids are Asian Americans. Are you following that case too? Yes, 100%. In fact, that's the first chapter of my book, An Inconvenient Minority. I talk about Thomas Jefferson High School in Fairfax County, 
the top number one math and science program in the entire nation by academic rankings, uh, recently changed its admissions policy to benefit, well, guess who? Blacks, Hispanics, and even white people over right. Asians. It used to be just a grades and test scores admissions process. By the way, there's nothing discriminatory about that. It's just grades and test scores. And just so happens Asians study really hard. And they have high, you know, they have high academic and math and science skills and they perform on these tests and these grades. Um, but they saw that Asians were taking over their high school. The, the school became 70% Asian over the last 20 years. And they sought to curb that by creating new diversity admission standards that have now reduced the Asian population there to only 35%. So that is the center of the controversy over should we have a race blind admission system or should we have one that uh, forces diversity standards down people's throats? Um, it, it's so the interesting thing about this moment and maybe tell us about uh, how your history got you here again. We're, we're talking to uh, Kenny shoes, a journalist, and he's written a book called the Incon- inconvenient minority, but you know, uh, affirmative action for, for decades was sort of, relatively unquestioned by Americans. They sort of said, okay, um, you know, maybe that's something that was needed or not. I'm talking about the general public, not sort of policymakers or insiders. But somehow in the last 10 or 12 or 15 years, this the question of um, how we admit kids, young people to universities in California, um, to uh, in, in your book, your, your book, uh, excuse me, the Harvard case, how Harvard handles it, how Thomas Jefferson, in part, Kenny, how did you get to this? And has the, is this a new awareness that is because of, I don't know, some kind of, is it really Asian hate or is it uh, success hate? I think it's a mixture of success hate and also a do-gooder's desire to help black Americans. I see. Um, not, not, I think I've discovered and I've investigated. That is what's behind this. They have a, They have a, first of all, woke left does not respect merit, okay? They don't care about merit. Merit is a foreign concept to them. Um, They don't understand. They they think tests are racist instruments. You're cutting out. Merit. They don't. Right. You you, you came Uh, back. Sorry. Yeah, you were were cutting out for a second, but yeah, I got you back. Go ahead. Keep going. Yes, please. So the, the point of what I'm trying to say is, They think merit is a racist principle. Okay. That's number one. So Asian Americans who are, who work into this culture via their merit and their talent are not respected. Number Mm -hmm. two, the woke left wants uh, more black representation. Um, That's fine. That's fine. But they do it in an abusive way. They do it in a way that abuses the success of other minorities like Asian Americans. In fact, at Harvard University, they let in blacks who have 40, 440 points lower on the SAT than their Asian American counterparts. Meaning hmm. that Asian Americans have higher standards just because they're Asian. So they do it in a, in a grotesque and unfair way. Those are the two reasons I outlined in my book. 
Do you and how did you how'd you get to this? I mean, I assume I've never met you, but that you're Asian American. I mean, did you is it something that the the community that you're, you know, grew up in is aware of? I I have a question sometimes in my head, like we say Asian Americans. I mean, I know just from my own life experience, I grew up in New Jersey in, in my high school. There were more Filipino uh, Americans than there were Chinese or other Asian Americans. But yeah, I mean, even more than African American, you say the word Asian American, there's a whole bunch of difference between a Filipino American and a, and a Chinese American. I mean, it's extraordinary. So how, how, does, how does that part play into it? And how does your own personal background play into it? Well, I would say they have a state, Harvard has special resentment for Chinese and Taiwanese Americans and Korean Americans um, because those are, that the cultural subgroup of people that is most likely to do well on these tests, even Asian Americans. And secondly, it's also. And we're cutting out again. Uh, uh, you cut out you, 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 you you know, that kind of competition. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Keep going. That, that competition anxiety. Hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm losing you a little bit, Kenny. Unfortunately, I, I know There's, we, yeah, we're, we're losing you a little bit. Let's see if you come back. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Yeah, I got you now. Yep, go ahead. Keep going, please. Okay. So, look, there is some competition anxiety between the U.S. and China, so I think that that has something to do with their special distaste for Chinese Americans. Um, but growing up in my life, I think what I saw in my high school, I also went to a high school in New Jersey where people were very competitive and wanted to get into all of the best colleges, including Princeton University and Harvard University, uh, is that people would use certain factors about themselves. This is back in 2015. People would use certain factors of themselves to get extra bonus points in the college admissions process. People would use their race. People would use the fact that they're LGBTQ. Um, and I just, I don't care about your race. I don't care that you're LGBTQ. I just want people to be evaluated on their merit. And I saw even in my high school, kids abusing that process to get extra favors with college admissions officers and counselors. By the way, they would use legacy privilege as well. And I just had an inherent distaste towards that process. You know, my dad, my mom, they came here with not much money at all. And they worked their way up and they didn't complain and they didn't use their victim status and their immigrant status to try to win them any favors. And so when I see people using things like their race and their gender and sexuality to win them favors, I'm inherently distasteful of it. Uh, we're talking with Kenny Shu, and he's the president, again, of Color Us United. And uh, we're talking about his book, uh, which is called An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy. So as a matter of politics, maybe, or just maybe um, general public uh, um, sentiment, there's been more polling in the last uh, few months, maybe uh, maybe weeks it is, that say Hispanic Americans are not voting, not, not pleased with Joe Biden and the Democrats, African Americans. Americans are moving away. I remember when Trump was running uh, for re-election, a friend of mine who was um, Indian American was talking about how the Indian Americans went with um, Hillary more back in the in the day in sixteen. But by the time Trump was up, they had moved over a bit. But I, I guess is there um, is the is there movement in the general sense that uh, uh, in this country 
that the affirmative action thing has been sort of a rigged game. I mean, the one thing people feel, they look up and they say, huh, the, the, uh, the, um, the, the uh, justice system seems like it's rigged. If you're powerful, you get away with it. The business, the economic system seems to be rigged. If you're a big bank, you get bailed out. Are, are, are normal people saying, you know what, that affirmative action thing, they, the way they're trying to jerry-rig uh, this is really unfair. It's rigged. Just, and and are, we, are we headed in a positive way? Yeah, affirmative action is a form of race rigging. That's that's what it is. Um, I'm not going to talk about the other parts of our culture that are like that, but in terms of race, there's definitely a form of rigging. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, these days, if you're not black, you can still get sort of those affirmative action points by pretending to be an ally. So, for example, there is this Indian guy, not not even black, an Indian guy who came from my hometown who wrote in his Stanford essay competition essay basically the essay that you have to write to get into college right he wrote hashtag black lives matter 100 times on his essay prompt that's Mm -hmm. what he wrote that's literally all he wrote and he got into stanford Hmm. (laughs) and wow and and here and here was me actually trying to write an essay that demonstrated the depth of my values and my experiences. And I didn't get any offers like that, you know? (laughs) Right. And, and so these days it's not just about, it's not just about being of a certain race. It's about also woking the woke. (laughs) It's a pun on walking the walk. Right. Um, Right. And, and so that's what it's devolved into. It's become a form of victim currency. That's what affirmative action has become. That's why we need to take it down. That's why the Asians suing Harvard and the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard case, which I chronicle in an inconvenient minority, is such an important case to reclaim meritocracy, which is we're not going to evaluate you on anything except how hard you work and your performance. The website, by the way, I meant to say it earlier, colorusunited.org, colorusunited.org, advocating for a race-blind America. If you go there, there's lots of content, lots of contacts, too, uh, and uh, a very useful site. The book, again, is An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy. Um, and uh, Kenny Shu is the author. You, you should check it out. It's, uh, I think this issue, to your point, I think a lot of issues are coming um, uh, uh, undone from the usual suspects, and there's a chance for people to rethink them. By the way, Diversion Books is who published this book. So, uh, uh, Kenny, I have to run, unfortunately, but we'll have you back on again. I appreciate your perspective and your willingness to be out there uh, uh, fighting the woke on this. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We'll take a break, everybody, and we'll be right back. Don't forget, we'll put this up on social media. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily commentary continuing the conservative pro-family legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. The shooter who opened fire at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York recently is only 18 years old. And we need to have a serious conversation about what motivates boys to commit these terrible acts. Some may try to laugh it off or call it a distraction, but we should not ignore the link to violent video games. The shooter dressed up like a character found in violent video games to which millions of teenage boys are addicted. He wore camouflage and a helmet, as can be seen in images from Call of Duty, one of the most popular shooter games around. The killer has no military training, and yet ruthlessly killed with horrific efficiency. 
Being shot at by a security guard didn't phase him, as these games train players to continue shooting rapidly in order to score as many points as possible. The deadly mindset encouraged by playing thousands and thousands of hours of shooter games should be easily recognized by us. Young men at age 18 should be learning skills to become productive members of society. The Buffalo, New York shooter is apparently from a strong family, having parents who are civil engineers. So familiar arguments about broken families leading to crime do not single-handedly explain this shooting rampage by a privileged young man. In the same weekend as the Buffalo shooting, a Milwaukee gunman opened fire on a crowd of 300 to 500 people after Game 6 of the NBA playoff game between the Milwaukee Bucks and the Boston Celtics. Police complained about understaffing to handle such violence in a rowdy crowd, which resulted in 17 people being shot, happily none fatally. No matter how the media or the liberals spin it, we ought to address clearly the contributing causes of addictive violent video games and understaffing of police departments on violence in our communities. The demagoguery of Democrats in exploiting these tragedies doesn't help to prevent them, after all. Blaming it all on the gun will not prevent even a single mass shooting. Instead, we have to talk about the people holding the guns and what could motivate them to do what they do. If we aren't willing to talk about the role violent video games play, we can't find the solutions we so desperately seek. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report with Ed Martin, president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. These culturally relevant commentaries, along with videos, columns, and bulletins, are waiting for you at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Plus, find, follow, and share our news and views on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Parler, Gab, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, I want to wish everybody a great weekend headed into the weekend, uh, especially these are the dog days of summer. Lots of people going on vacation, lots of people having fun. I hope you have a good weekend. Uh, we in my household are actually going to go, I think, to a, a museum nearby that teaches you how to make homemade ice cream with like a crank uh, like an old fashioned colonial um, uh, ice cream making uh, exhibit or whatever it would be a display. And my daughter wanted to see that. So we're going to do that as a family. I hope you get some family time in and otherwise have a great weekend. We will be back on uh, next week. Don't forget, go to proamericareport.com and check on everything there as well as sign up uh, for our uh, daily emails. Thank you as always to Noah Dingley, the greatest producer in America. Uh, associate producer, producer Joanna Spilger, too. So thank you to those two great people. Have a great weekend, everybody. Talk to you next week. Ed Martin, Pro-America Report. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.